Hello and welcome, you're listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. I'm Hugh Osborne as, and as always I'm joined by Hannah Wakeford and Andrew Rushby. And as usual this is a multi-podcast system this month and you can check out Exocast 50C to find our monthly news discussion. Uh, but in this ex- episode um, we're going to be asking the question, what's the point in studying exoplanets? So. Uh, it seems we don't give ourselves any easy questions these days, uh, so this is definitely going to be a tricky one to discuss and answer. Um, and there's going to be a load of different avenues I'm sure we'll go down and explore, from the direct technical benefits of astronomical research to the more kind of indirect philosophical reasons we should study blue sky science. Um, but I think it's going to be clear that each of us is going to argue that studying exoplanets is indeed a useful, positive endeavour. Um, so I thought it might be, be nice for us to start off exploring why each of the three of us has ended up in exoplanet research and what are kind of underlying motivations were and still are. So, um, so Hannah, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in, and in exoplanets and how you became a researcher? What little Hannah wanted to do when she was growing up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, honestly, I completely changed what I wanted to do so many times. In Britain, the education system really forces you into deciding what subject area you want to go down at about the age of 13 or 14. So you have to decide really, really early what you are interested in and where you want to go because it kind of does limit you and define the rest of your education. But when I was a little kid, I always wanted to be an adventurer. I just wanted to, I went from wanting to be an Egyptologist to being an oceanographer to being you know, paleontologists, everyone loves dinosaurs. Anything and, and everything that would allow me to travel around the world and just see as many different things as possible. And it was really kind of when I was picking my GCSEs and stuff and my sister's a year above me. So she, when she started picking, like looking for university stuff, at that point when I, I like to plan, I like to do things early. I like to know what's <laughs> going to happen. So when she was picking a university, I decided that I should also be picking a university. So I was looking through all of the things and I was only selecting universities basically outside of 50 miles from my parents' house and anything that had like a year where they'd send you abroad. I wanted to travel. I wanted to do a course where I was going to be sent abroad and I wanted to do physics or chemistry because I enjoyed the kind of the the logical consistency of both of them because they're both really logical but I also enjoyed the fact that I was allowed to do what I wanted in science class compared to English class which sounds really odd but my English teachers were really weirdly strict about structure and you have to read this and you have to do it in this way whereas the science teachers were like well find out what's happening and and that I really enjoyed so I picked a university based on where they would send me. And that university was going to send me to the Arctic for a year. So (laughs) that's why I ended up in a degree that was physics with planetary and space science. So I actually did a planetary science degree. And I was actually supposed to do a PhD from there in planetary science, what I'd spent the year researching. So I'd spent the year researching in Svalbard, the aurora, and the impact of the sun on the Earth's atmosphere. So that's what my my master's was in. And I loved doing that. And I got offered a position um, to continue doing that up at Svalbard. But I also got offered a position in exoplanets. And every now and again, I've been trying, like Kepler had launched 
a few years before or a year before um, and I'd always tried to pick and choose and I just really I wanted to know what the impact of stars would be on other planets like are there aurora on other planets and what would that be like could we measure that and I was just always interested on projecting what I was learning about the earth and Venus and the other planets we were studying out towards other worlds and they had suddenly just become something that we could actually do so I kind yeah. of took a gamble and went actually I want that one instead I want to do something different and I was very 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 lucky that I got the PhD position that I did and I think and I'm I mean, David Singh can correct us on Twitter for this one if he ever listens to this, but I'm pretty certain the only reason why I got offered that position is because I was probably the only person they interviewed who was currently sitting in the Arctic tundra at the time of the interview, <laughs> which is a really that big helps. kind of, I think, help. Um, so that's that's why I'm here, because it's an adventure of its own right. And all of the things in my life kind of lined up to that being possible. Yeah, I feel like we we were probably all around the same like time frame, and we were being forced into a degree or a PhD when you know exoplanets were beginning to ramp up in terms of discovery and characterization stuff. And there were you know we weren't involved in research, but we were probably seeing popular science articles when we were at, at school and in, in in undergrad when we you know we were reading about exoplanets. And I think that probably helped all of us be pushed. I into really this. genuinely don't remember exoplanets before oh, really? being a, a like a proper thing and I read New Scientist all the time I read lots of popular science books and it was all about the solar system and I, I don't remember exoplanets being like a solidified thing until people started talking about Kepler I, I mean I remember all the, the RV worlds and the you know GJ 581D or E or something I can't mm. remember and that being a big a big thing pre-Kepler, you know, these new RV small planets around M dwarfs. Um, that that was kind of always in the back of my mind in terms of exoplanets, I think, while I was also being influenced by other choices, you know. Well, what about you? We just had a very long trip down Wakeford memory lane <laughs> that we just didn't need yeah. to go down. Um. <laughs> I mean, I think it's hard to look back, especially when you chose a specific you know, path through life and then figure out what choices you made and what things influenced you. I think mm. that's really difficult to do it and is. you end up being biased, right? Um, but I think, like you, I always had a soft spot for kind of space and um, and uh, science as and, and, you know, exploration as well. Um, and I feel like actually it was that love of like, like, I watched, I watched a lot of documentaries and read a lot of books about people climbing mountains and discovering new lands and mapping new areas that new, no human had kind of ever visited before. And that kind of aspect of discovery really interested me, like more than science and space, I think. And I feel like that was what pushed me towards, like, you know, wanting to find new planets. Mm. Right? That feels like a logical step. We've, we've found, every, you know, the Earth has been completely mapped. The planets in the solar system, you know, they're all pretty much discovered and mapped by now. So the logical next step is to go find other planets. Um, um, and so I ended up doing, like like you, I started in planetary science at university. Um, but it turned out being like 80% looking at rocks. <laughs> the course does I was do doing, that, yeah. Which, um, which I found... T tediously you know horrible basically <laughs> but I was, so was in, in my first year I also did like an astronomy module which is this was at UCL and that same year was actually 
when a few of the PhDs at the observatory where I was doing that module caught the first transit of HD 80606b, so this big eccentric long period planet, and they got that from central London, and I was I wasn't actually there, but that was the same year. Like they published the paper while I was was working at the same telescope, and so I think at that point I really caught the bug of like transits and exoplanets and that was one of these things that inspired me to go you know spend three the final three years of that degree doing everything I could and it's attending every seminar and doing every module that I thought might get me into exoplanet science and yeah like you I was lucky enough at the end of that, that undergrad to, to get a PhD and and, and continue from there but I, I feel like yeah so this combination of liking exploration and discovery you know being a, a sponge for science documentaries and all that as a kid and then having these specific key moments of inspiration uh, under in undergrad that together kind of pushed me into exoplanets. I absolutely love that, you know, I was studying like nuances of, and most of my planetary science degree was atmospheric physics, actually. Um, so oh, yeah. it didn't have to deal with the rocks until much later. <laughs> um, but that that inspired me to try and find out more about these planets and you yours is very very similar but you know you do detections and you kind of took that in a actually i want to discover that these things exist and i, I love that there is that incredibly similar story but with very different motivations behind it so now i'm absolutely fascinated to hear andrew's story of going into astrobiology which is is again yeah. so completely different well if anything, I feel inspired by your stories. I feel like my story is, is basically a tale of a lack of commitment uh, throughout my throughout my uh, kind of advanced science education. So, well, we we just glossed over those parts. Yeah, we just we, we kind of we flowered them up. We made them made them. <laughs> I was just you know Hannah, Hannah made a very good point there about you know having to make decisions when you're a teenager basically to decide what your for your future trajectory is when you're not even really trusted to go to the bathroom at your on your own at that age. They're also oh what do you want to do for the rest of your life uh, at the at that same question. So I like to keep my uh, options open. And I uh, went for a degree that is the jack of all trades degree, uh, physical geography, which is uh, occasionally looked down on by other folks in science. But uh, I enjoyed my time there. And I focused during my degree there on uh, biogeography. So that's basically where life is on the planet and why. So kind of coming at this this uh, idea of habitability. And there's definitely looking back at now a lot of crossovers with the ecological modeling theories that were uh, being developed there. Um, but also geomorphology, which is basically windblown sand. So I mean, mm. you know, exciting to some degree. And hydrogeology. I was going to be a hydrogeologist. I was going to understand how, how water moved through aquifers. And I mean, that's an incredibly important thing. Um, but whilst they were interesting, I always felt like they lacked that uh, exciting application, kind of what Hugh was hinting at, like Earth is a bit passe, right? We've done it. We know how stuff moves here on Earth. <laughs> So whenever there was an opportunity where the coursework was kind of open uh, to a little bit of interpretation, I was like, right, let's do hydrogeology on Mars instead of doing it on Earth because, you know, Earth is done, it's boring. And, um, you know, once that was getting quite well received, I thought, actually, yeah, maybe this is um, maybe this is where we need to start start exploring things outside of the Earth. And again, around about that same time Kepler had launched, that was my final year of my undergraduate degree, 2009, uh, and I moved to the UEA and started doing another jack-of-all-trades degree in environment mental sciences uh, with again a, a focus more on, on atmospheric chemistry at that stage um, and I stumbled in to uh, I guess just 
being in the right place at the right time. I don't know if we've discussed that yet. And in some degree, you know, being in the right place, i.e. on the planet whilst things are being discovered, but also finding the right people at the right time. And I was very fortunate to find a, a supportive mentor during my, my master's degree and my PhD, and Andrew Watson, who's now down at the University of Exeter. Um, and he was always interested in this stuff. He did his PhD, uh, he did his postdoc at, uh, at NASA as well, studying Venus and, and atmospheric processes there. So he encouraged this kind of out-of-the-box thinking. And I remember the one module I did was earth system science and i thought finally this is clicking right this is everything i wanted this generalized approach to planetary science this kind of modular element that you can really focus in on the things that interest you and actually i think that was about the time you and i met hugh right you were a master yeah. student i think i was a first year phd student and you did a a, a summer project with us uh, on was it stellar evolution right and that yeah i mean my... that, was, that was at the stage where i was literally just like trying to do as much exactly. as i could in order to get into exoplanets yeah and we, we only had good I, things I, to say about this incredibly enthusiastic master student that, that came back you know during his summer summer holiday and uh, and wanted to do some modeling for us and we're like absolutely great and that, i think that fed into my first paper so it's been a kind of intertwined story for us uh, as uh, as yeah. i've been as i've been developing this so um so, yeah i guess it, it was just a not a coincidence I, I definitely don't want to say that but being in the right place at the right time with the right people very important I, I feel for like fostering that sense of yes you can do this and this this is cool because i certainly heard from other folks that maybe their uh, their mentorship was a little bit more limited in in mm. you know kind of in the box thinking and there is something to be said there uh, as well but maybe i was just fortunate in, in that respect I think young Andrew would have absolutely loved the course that I'm teaching right now uh, called Environmental Physics, which is mostly fluid dynamics kind of thermo, but it's all to do with atmospheres. And I have crammed in as much astrophysical examples as possible into this course. Like I'm trying to trying to make sure that every week all of the things that we're having to teach them because we focus on earth. We have a huge amount of information about earth and we Makes can sense, use right? that system to understand things. Yeah. How can we apply that? And I've, I think I've put an exoplanet episode. Uh, episode. Oh, dear Lord. <laughs> this is what happens when you have to record your lectures. <laughs> I think I've put an exoplanet uh, lecture in every week now. So I think I think I'm hoping to capture some of the young Andrews out there. <laughs> I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. And actually, once I'd taken that course as a master's student, I demonstrated on it as a PhD uh, student or, or TA if you're in America, uh, and then eventually started to also teach on it and kind of the feedback completed like the cycle completed yeah. and i was hopefully motivating other young andrews <laughs> uh, to, to go off and, and, and do more science as well and i know some of them have uh, maybe not directly because of my my lectures in particular but i know some people who've taken that course <laughs> have now gone on to to carry on to do great things so um yeah yeah complete the loop everyone out there who, who's listening if you were inspired by something that you were you were taught um Firstly, tell the lecturer that they would love to hear it. Uh, and then secondly, maybe when you have that opportunity, pass that enthusiasm on. Yeah, I f and I feel like that extends not just through university, but also probably to school, right? There must have been, at least for me, the teachers that, that I found most dynamic and most like inspiring were in geography and physics. And that really probably were, you know, the reasons yeah. that I went into to planetary science because of those two teachers in some ways. Um, and, and, you know, if I, if I had a better biology teacher or whatever, not better, but, you know, if I Let's had more... not listening. <laughs> <laughs> 
um, then maybe I would have ended up in a different path. So I wonder, was that the same for you? Did you have specifically inspiring teachers when you were uh, at school? I can certainly think of a, of a few, uh, certainly. Uh, Mrs. Larkin, I don't know if she's listening, but she was kind of our like <laughs> general science teacher when I was still living back in South Africa. And she was certainly a very inspiring, a very inspiring person, kind of like a Miss Frizzle from the Magic School Bus type character with <laughs> everything was just pure enthusiasm and excitement. And she brought in, oh, what did she bring? She brought in some phosphorus and nearly set like the desk on fire by accident. And it was just, it was amazing and uh, I was like yes this is this is what science can be and how uh, you know it can motivate people to, uh, to to go on and do some great things if you can just be touched by that one uh, you know the motivation the enthusiasm of that one teacher you can you can carry it on and I sent her an email uh, actually a few years ago and got a, a really nice response so again if you have been affected by a teacher like that make sure you let them know they, they would appreciate <laughs> it I'm sure what about you, I, I have a very different uh when I was in school, I loved it. And then when I look back, I go, what the hell? That was just absolute torture. Um, but I did have this one physics teacher, Mr. Pomfret, who I don't believe is around anymore. And he was, he, like, I like people who um, can can give it as well as take it. Um, he, he, we were called the Wakeford girls at school to almost all teachers, because three of us, uh, three years apart, you, you know. You're, you're a triplet? No, no, no. We <laughs> oh, were right. all, you know, uh, every teacher, we'd been in, the, it's a, it's basically the same school from church all the way up to sick form. Um, and all the teachers knew us because we were all so different. So it was all, you know, which of the Wakeford girls have you got? Um, because we, we speak out, but we in different ways. And the physics teacher... I remember very clearly walking down the corridor with my friend who had very straight hair and she's wearing it in a ponytail. And he hits me on the head with a news, a rolled up newspaper. And he goes, Oi, step back here. Look at that. Pen and her hair was swinging like a pendulum, you know, perfectly in time <laughs> with, with her steps. What's going on? And he would just be, and he knew that, you know, that the way to get my attention is to hit me on the head with a newspaper. It really, it, it <laughs> just genuinely works. Everyday um, application but, of physics right there. <laughs> and just be like, look, look, that's, you know, here's an example of something because I just don't like mathematical concepts as a concept. I like a physical concept and I like it applied to things so that I can understand it. And he was incredibly good at that. When we were doing uh, some kind of radioactive decay, he would put a bin bag full of, tennis balls hanging from the desk and we would each have to throw things at it and you know the number of times people would miss because you just can't quite get it um and we used to use that statistic to work things out so he was very kind of had interesting ways of teaching that made it easy to grasp and associate rather than just writing on a board which i just don't get <laughs> yeah so well we've talked a little bit about our motivations but i think we should also you know move on to the broader question of you know what's the point of studying exoplanets what are the general um kind of positive influence that, that astronomy and, and exoplanets has on the world um so i think yeah there's a few ways we can approach this but why don't we talk talk about the kind of positive technical developments first so do you have any examples of things that um that astronomy has pioneered which has then become a useful technical development for the rest of society I think there's a ton of examples of this. And, and one of the things that is always discussed is that astronomy is a really big driver for technology. But the way we're asking those questions and when we're asking those questions means that the applications to the everyday, you know, 
takes tens of years, you know, it takes time to kind of trickle down into something commercial. But one of the stories that they like to tell at Space Telescope, I was a Giacconi Prize Fellow at, at Space Telescope, and Giacconi has this reputation. Because um, one of the stories they tell is about uh, the work that he did on x-rays that led to the development of the x-ray detectors that you get at airports and at every single museum in DC and uh, at the White House. And he had been invited to the White House and uh, had to go through one of these x-ray detectors. And he decided to stop and lecture the guard there about how they worked and where they came from and the fact that the, it was preventing him from going into the White House at this time, but he, in fact, was the reason it was there in the first place. And that's always, I've always found that a very funny story. Um, so, like, that's an application that, love or hate it, uh, is a very practical application that's come from astronomy itself. Um, the way that we detect different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum across the entire one. We could think of anything from any single part of the electromagnetic spectrum you can trace that back to astronomy. So that's really one of the, the biggest things is just how we, how sensitive we have to be to detections means that that, that has vast applications. Well, I wonder if we could consider it the kind of the other way around, like Earth observation satellites, Landsat, for example, is uh, if anyone's you know done a, a, a geography degree or a GIS degree, you would have come across and definitely used some Landsat data. Uh, and that was very much pointing stuff at the Earth uh, and imaging from there. But yeah. without a doubt, a lot of the improvements that were made um, went both ways, I, I think, in, in that respect. Um, imaging other planets and learning about uh, spectroscopy, for example, uh, different land surface albedos and their reflective properties. Again, that kind of fed in on the planetary missions that were being fed out, and those planetary missions then fed back. And we can, we definitely talked about it before, turning um, turning different uh, spacecraft towards the Earth, seeing if we can detect life, and we, we've definitely done that before. So I think that Earth observation, astron astronomical observation synergy uh, has been something that's kind of difficult to pull apart, but have definitely given us benefits, you know, GPS and, and, and Google Earth and, you know, just basically looking at your house from space, but also much more useful mapping applications that go kind of you know, go, go kind of both ways, I think. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of astronomical um, observations that you can only do from space, you know, UV and, and, X, UV and X-ray and gamma rays and things like that. And, and I feel like just the fact that, you know, astronomical space telescopes have been launching every couple of years for 50 years almost now. Um, has kind of kept the space industry chugging along and maybe led to improvements in 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 you know the rest of the the positive kind of aspects we have from from satellite industry basically well we know that there's a massive feedback loop between military applications and and astronomy and space-based stuff i'm not sure we can call that a positive <laughs> and we might not be be able to call that a positive um some people might i mean one of the biggest applications that we've got is the advancement of infrared detectors and detectability and to be honest infrared yeah. detectors have never been commercialized like a ccd has so everyone's got a ccd they got it in their phones everyone takes optical pictures that is something that is absolutely everywhere it has improved considerably over time because there's a huge commercial driver for it but a lot of the stuff that we do actually has more of a military driver for it and that's where the development comes from so a lot of the development does have to go hand in hand with military technologies because that's where the money and the drive for something better and better is also coming from. Because let's not kid ourselves, the space uh, science industry does not have that huge amount of funds. 
Um, yeah. We need it, it comes from somewhere, and infrared sensitive emotions and things that we coat different detectors with are used extensively to penetrate military camouflage. It's used to detect uh, various different aspects of nuclear technologies. Uh, you can tell the difference between the infrared light from very different types of reactors um, and scales. But it's also been used um, for helping, you know, detect disease crops and the deforestation and, and the lack of infrared footprint from a number of other more biological things. So I think that while we may not agree with the military applications for a lot of these things, and we don't have to, um, we can't deny that there has been a feedback loop between the two uh, over a, over yeah. a long time. And I think what sometimes happens is that uh, the you know astronomy develops an idea and creates the initial prototypes. The military takes that on, and then eventually that becomes fe fed back into general kind of use. I mean, so, we I can mean, look at James Webb for an example. There, yeah. um, I mean, James Webb is a very large telescope that has to be folded up so that it can fit in a rocket, go into space, so we can launch something so large. When the idea came about. It, you know they were like can we do this oh yeah we can do this that definitive yeah we can do this they've done it before yeah um they're not going to tell us exactly what when where and why but it's been done before um so there is <laughs> there's a, a time delay we benefit well, from it as well there is there is there is definitely but definitely a lag, right? That we are that if we could harness that same level of uh, observational technology that we assume we don't know for sure that that the militaries are probably already harnessed ten years ago, we might be a little bit further along with our exoplanet detections than, yeah. we, than we currently are. <laughs> um, but maybe we should leave it there so we don't get on some sort of list. <laughs> yeah. Well, I feel like there's this. Yeah, the lag is kind of a problem because in some ways. You know, for, for astronomical observations, we develop a lot of ideas, there's a lot of prototypes, and we don't know when we're developing, you know, new telescopes, which of those, you know, engineering concepts is going to be useful. We're developing these just to get a better view of the universe, right? We don't, we don't think about what the feedback effect is going to be in 20, 30 years. And I'm sure maybe, maybe Giacomi, is that how you say it? Giacomi. Giacomi didn't know that, that his uh, X-ray scanning techniques would be would end up in a TSA machine in, in an airport. Um, he just wanted to, to develop them for astronomical imaging. So we can't really, you know, um, we can't say at the time what's going to be useful in the future. We have to just develop everything we can in order to improve our observations. And some of those developments are going to have a positive in impact in the future. Um, and I think that's the important thing when you're thinking about, okay, why should we fund this new telescope? It doesn't, it's not useful right now. Well, yeah, of course it's not useful right now. But maybe the things that we're going to need to develop, you know, thinking about something like the LISA uh, in space interferometric mission in 20 years, you know, that's a really high cutting edge design. And for the moment, space interferometry is not really useful for anything else except detecting gravitational waves and doing astronomical things. But we don't know if in, in 40, 50 years, that's going to become a, a really necessary technology for human um, development, right? So I think that's an important thing, is that funding blue sky research and funding these kind of technological advancements can actually help the entire uh, 
can help develop things that are positive for the entire species. Yeah, and I think we need to segue there and explain what we, we, we're saying. We, we're using the term blue skies research. I don't think we've defined it. Um, and the term blue skies research is used for a lot of subjects, especially things like astronomy, where we're basically standing there and asking the question, why is the sky blue? It's such an open question. It's such a question that has little impact on you or seemingly little impact on you. The why the sky is blue is actually incredibly important for life here on Earth. So it's a fundamental question that we have, but it doesn't feel like it has any direct applications. But I think in along that term, I think blue skies research, I like the term because the reason the sky is blue is so fundamentally important. That means that blue skies research is so fundamentally important. We're asking the really big questions. And uh, I think that that's something that we kind of hadn't touched on. We kind of dived into there. Yeah, I guess we, we jumped straight into technology, right? And there's, uh, there's philosophy here, uh, which we sometimes shy away from. I love incorporating a little bit of philosophy every every now and then. Um, but it is like the biggest question, surely, that, that we have is why are we here and where are we going? And uh, is there anything else like us out there? And that's a question that is not limited to just this time where we have the capability to at least ad- advance that a little bit further. But it's been part of our history for at least 2000 years. People have been wondering this and, and wondering, you know, uh, and, and trying to figure out if there's a way to answer this. And some people uh, have have paid the ultimate price for those kind of questions. Uh, Bruno, for example, was burnt at the stake uh, for, for, for postulating that there was uh, probably other planets out there. Uh, and if they were, they were probably something like the Earth. And he wasn't, he wasn't far wrong. And I, I hope he's been vindicated for that now. Um, but um it's probably uh, postulated quite a lot of our stuff, but I completely yes, agree with yes, that. Exactly. Um, I think if you go back to one of our first exocasts, Hannah did a, an excellent uh, rundown of the history of exoplanet science and, and touched on uh, all the martyrs to our field, shall we say. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yes. Yeah, I think per- like personally, even though we've touched on there some technological benefits, mm. um, I don't care. I don't think that the, the technological benefits, I think that's asking the wrong question. You know, what mm. what's the economic benefit we get from these these scientific like research we do mm. in 30 years time right that's the wrong question to ask the question should be like what's what do we personally get out of it you know if we are discovering something about the universe that's that's fundamental you know answering a key question like you know is there life out there how did the earth you know is the earth special you know those those, those key questions that exoplanetary science is trying to answer it shouldn't matter about whether there is or isn't technological benefits for that. That in, in itself is enough to um, to be a driver for science, I think. It should be, at least. But yeah. I, I don't know if you've ever been on a, on, a, on a NASA funding panel, Hugh. If you try and say that, which everyone in the room would agree with, you well, probably still wouldn't get the, the mission funded. That's the, that's the issue. I mean, yeah, this is... The, I think that's... Well, capitalism, I think that's the problem. No, I mean, <laughs> capitalism is a massive problem. We are driven by commercial entities. We are mm-hmm. driven by where the money comes from. Absolutely. I mean, we can ask these questions and they are they are important questions. We should bloody well be asking them. Mm-hmm. But someone is at, at a point then paying us to ask those questions. And who's doing that and where that money comes from, unfortunately, has consequences and, and has to have... Yeah. reasoning behind it there's a the reason it's so hard to get funding for something is because they're looking for some justification that they can tell the people that are paying for it to kind of give it up and it's 
it holds us back, I think, from asking even some of the biggest questions. I think it really does hold us back. But I, I don't plan in the next uh, 20 minutes left of this podcast, if that, uh, to try and solve it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I think so. So normally these funding entities, they are taxpayer money. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about exactly. the community is effectively funding research into exoplanets. Yes. Right? And I think personally, you know, we should... We should judge countries where people must work hard to survive and they don't give any other time for uh, personal pleasure. We should judge societies the same way. You know, I prefer to live in a society that allocates some small amount of that community resource to a scientific, blue sky, curiosity-based research rather than spending purely on, you know, what's necessary, what, what do we need to survive. I think that that, you know, by spending some community resources on to just curiosity, I think that's a sign of like a mature forward-thinking civilization that's thinking outside of its like geographic political constraints so i think that that you know a, a political uh, or a yeah spending taxpayer pay, pay money and requiring that there's an economic benefit is the wrong question being asked by these panels really. i think it is the wrong question being asked but i do not think that every single person society country on this planet is in the position where they're able to do that i don't think that we are at the point where this world is equal in any way whatsoever and therefore it unfortunately currently is not able to to put some of that money away there are countries where if they took even a small amount of money and put it to something else they wouldn't be able to survive either politically or physically survive so i think that there is there is a a privilege to what we're doing i think there's a huge privilege to having the ability and that we all live in countries and we come from countries where we have the ability to put that taxpayer money aside and, and spend it on these big broad questions and i hope that we're answering that for all humanity i hope that we're not answering it just for our governments and i think that's that's the way that i'd like to see it structured is not what can this answer for the uk what can this answer for nasa what can this answer for the us what can this answer for france i want it to be what can this answer for the world i don't want it to be limited to what benefit do we get from it what benefit does everybody get from it because then that does mean that the people who have the ability to pay for that research, to put aside that money that they don't need to survive onto something where we can just spend it on curiosity, it means it is for everybody and it equalizes that out. Yeah. I think there's another benefit there where you're talking about kind of equalization. I feel like by by um, like discovering the kind of grand scale of the universe and, and answering these these questions based on, you know, whether the Earth is, is, is special and when, how, how many other planets like the Earth are out there and whether there's life on other planets. I feel like by um, the, the research that, that's done in this respect, when it filters down into the population, it, it actually changes in some respect the mindset of people. You know, People are all too often kind of like caught in a human-centric view in the world, thinking mm. only in terms of like family, city, culture, cu- country you know, themselves. And whereas these kind of grand scale um, research kind of can kind of, um, you know, make these human problems a little bit smaller than we we believe. They kind of make the conflicts between countries, you know, seem like frivolous follies compared to the scale of the universe. And you can point to things like the Apollo missions blue marble image, which starts, started the environmental mu- movement and Carl Sagan's pale blue dot. You know, there are some of these important messages which come on the back of astronomy. 
and that I think help um, bring people together rather than you know support this kind of nationalistic um, individualistic um, mindset that some people have. It's a very yeah. good point, Hugh. Actually, I, th- I think there's a term for that that several astronauts experience called the observer effect, where you know when you are standing on the moon, looking back on the Earth, seeing this tiny, fragile, you know, little globe just hanging there in the vast expanse of space, it, it gives you that that cosmic perspective. And I, I look forward to the time, and I hope it's soon that more people can access that that perspective, that that we can get that picture that that cosmic perspective a little bit easier um and you you touched on it ever so slightly there but when we're looking for planets when we're looking for potentially life out there it also we're looking in a way not out we're looking in right what is it that makes us special as well and if we continue to search and again there's questions about null hypotheses here how long do we look for before we definitively say there's nothing out there but if we continue to search and we don't seem to find anything i've always thought that that in itself gives us uh, another a bit more impetus to look after each other and look after the planet because hey maybe we are the only intelligent manifestation of this universe that's ever been and does that not in itself give us a responsibility to look after each other and make sure that we get to the next step or uh, you know until we're an interplanetary species and we can be a little bit you know have that insurance i i don't know but it has to it has to feedback uh, as you say hugh there's there's a there's a perspective that it gives us that we can use here on earth to look after each other even down to the individual family level like what is the chance that i will be here you know surrounded by my family who i love in this you know incredibly enormous universe at this exact time and this exact place and goes all the way from the exoplanet scale right down to the individual if if you want to see it that way or if you can see it that way Yeah, and I I think that I always like to turn the question on its head. I always like to kind of go, actually, we need to understand these worlds because we have no idea about our own. We have no idea what what little nuances were required to leave us here. Did we need Jupiter? Did Jupiter need Saturn to stop it from falling in to become a hot Jupiter? What extra little things do we need? And by looking at all of these other worlds and by looking and understanding the way that the physics, the chemistry, the dynamics, the way everything is happening in all of these really strange environments comes together to define what those worlds are like by using that to understand more about what our worlds are like and how and why they might not look like any of the others that we're we're currently seeing. I think we've got a long way to go before we beat that observer bias in exoplanets so that we can truly start exploring that question. But that's the way I I think about it, because I started by studying the solar system planets and wanting to know more about them and understanding why. Why does Venus not have a magnetic field? Why do we we have one? And why did Mars stop? You know, there's so many little questions there. And then when we look at exoplanets, we can go, okay, well, this is happening out there. That can actually inform us about whether or not that was likely. Was that something that we should have expected? And I find that the most fascinating thing is that we're, we're able to explore these very extreme environments and ask the question, okay, what would happen if we were in that extreme environment? What does that mean for our solar system and our planets? Yeah. And I feel like we're lucky in, a, in exoplanets in that those open questions that we're trying to answer, they're very accessible. You know, you could argue that... Um, that quantum mechanics, for example, or you know, some of these are a little bit more out there, a little bit more difficult to picture theories in, in physics. They have less of this um, connection with the public, 
in terms of uh, the, the questions they're answering. You know, we live on a planet. Everyone knows about the Earth. Everyone can, can appreciate looking for planets like the Earth in the universe and characterizing planets like Jupiter because, you know, we can see the planets in our solar system through a telescope, right? Uh, which isn't quite the case with string theory. And I feel like the fact that we have this connection in exoplanets with, um, with the public that is a little bit easier actually enables exoplanets to inspire um, the general public a little bit better. So, so some, of, some of the results we've had in the last few years, you know, you both mentioned Kepler um, 10 years ago and, you know, TRAPPIST-1, everyone knows, well, not everyone, but, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the population know about TRAPPIST-1 and the seven planets around it, which I find astonishing. Um, and I think that the more, you know, the more connection you can have between science, you know, in this case, exoplanetary science, and the more you can inspire the population and especially young kids and things to go into um, these kind of curiosity driven STEM, so science, technology, engineering, medicine kind of subjects, um, the better society can function. You know, I think that that's, that that's maybe one aspect we haven't covered is that there's this inspiration that happens through exoplanetary research, um, which can, even if they don't become exoplaneteers like us, they can be inspired to go into similar fields. There's been actually a lot of studies on this and astronomy and astronomers have a significantly disproportionate impact on public science and the science education compared to the number of people that are doing astronomy and astrophysics. Yeah, I believe it. They have, <laughs> there's a, a really nice set of studies from the AAS. Um, there was a set of studies from the Institute of Physics um, which were looking at all of the different fields that they cover and which ones, why do people go into different STEM subjects? And astronomy crops up so much more than any other subject, even though only a small fraction of people are astronomers. And I think that that's something that is really important because it is a gateway. We are the gateway drug uh, into... <laughs> to scientific education and getting people hooked on a subject and then going on to learn about it and going oh there's loads of other things and maybe being able to find out actually I really like the mechanics side of this and one of the things that I love about exoplanets when I'm teaching and when I'm teaching my first years is that absolutely everything is applicable to exoplanets absolutely <laughs> everything can be spun to exoplanets all of the things they're learning in earth sciences and geography, everything they're learning in mechanics, you can put to an exoplanet. You, you talked about HD 80606b, the really eccentric planet. I actually use that with my engineers as an engineering subject because it's basically like a system. If you hit a system with a hammer, you see how long it rings. That's engineering. You, you hit something with a hammer, you see how long it rings and takes to settle back into equilibrium. That's really important part of mechanics. That's what that planet's doing. It's coming around every 111 days, being hit in the face by its star and then going back and having to settle down again. It's an engineering <laughs> system. So there's so many different little bits that we can apply to that I think that it's such a fantastic subject to bring and continue that inspiration throughout, even if people then go on to use that in many, many different ways. I've, yeah. I've got to agree with 
everything you've both said uh, there. But I think we've also, throughout this, there's been this kind of theme of there is an emotive element to this, maybe a, an unscientific element to this, if you want to put it that way. And we shouldn't leave behind our colleagues in the arts and humanities. I feel like they have yeah, an absolute not. role to play here in telling the story maybe a little bit better than we can. Or maybe not yeah. us, because we're we're good at this. I'd like, you know, I'd like to think people <laughs> like to listen to the show. So maybe we're, we're doing okay, but we can still do better. And there certainly is... Um, space i think for more emotive maybe more artistic more maybe more storytelling elements and we've had you know we've had folks on who who do the storytelling side of this as well as the science uh before so i think uh we shouldn't we shouldn't leave our colleagues behind uh in the arts in case any of them are listening we want them we want them to come in and, and help us to to bring some of these maybe a little bit more complex concepts because they are out there um it, it, you know, even better into the public into the public eye um, I completely, completely agree with that. Thank you for bringing that up. I think that is so important. Uh, any of my students listening, listen to Andrew. Make that travel poster I asked you to make over the Easter break. <laughs> do your homework. Please submit. Please do your homework so that I can see all the different beautiful travel poster ideas. They won't do it. That's not the point. But I, I think it is hugely important that we, we do try and incorporate that as much as possible and, and talk to people you know, those travel posters didn't come just from scientists. They came from working with artists and working with people. And I know a lot of science communicators who work with cartoonists and different ways of communicating different problems. Uh, and it can be absolutely fascinating. I mean, take a Hubble image, for example. If that's not art, I don't know what is. That's a very good point, Hannah. And actually some of the, some of the most... Uh fascinating in that they were kind of out of my realm of 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 kind of thought at the time was uh, a panel that i attended at one of the ab psychons a few years ago uh, in which it was religious leaders uh, from different from different uh, religions discussing how for example the discovery of life on another planet might in their opinion uh, be interpreted by their their followers how might um you know for example someone who's a catholic determine uh, incorporate into their uh, religious view the fact that there might be uh, you know life on other planets and and those religious uh, elements did have uh, different uh, approaches. Uh, I think the, and again, I don't want to get this wrong, but I think the, uh, the the representative from Catholicism was like, great, this is more people that we can convert. <laughs> and it, was, oh, it, it never seemed like it would be an issue to incorporate that into their theology, but it wasn't immediately obvious to me. There was also an element like this could be an existential crisis for people. If we're used to talking about this, we're used to thinking maybe about the possibility there could be life out there, but for fo folks who aren't and who, you know, maybe see the world a little bit differently from us may be a, a crisis point if we were to discover life and be out there being proud about it and, and couldn't wait to tell everyone. How might different people interpret that and, and mm -hmm. incorporate that into their lives is also just as important as being accurate and getting that information out there. Once it's out there, there's little we can do about it, but we can understand perhaps how people might incorporate that into their existing worldview and hopefully maybe adapt, adapt it uh, because religions are malleable and uh you know as i said there's just just more life out there to appreciate the, the the grandiosity of the universe perhaps that sounds so fascinating it was a very interesting discussion exocast so did we did we come up with an answer for what is the point of studying exoplanets I think we came up with a few different answers and you can pick and choose which one uh, you think it applies how to summarize how to summarize that <laughs> Um, yeah, because it's both scientifically and emotively powerful 
thing to do. Uh, I, I don't know how else to put it, right? It, it speaks to something deep within us as well as leveraging our scientific knowledge and expertise. And that's got to be a great, a great combination, a great intersection of things. Well, anything else technologically wise, we will let you know in 20 years time what's come out of this. Uh, don't forget that you can look out for our other episodes this month where we're going to go through this month's uh, news, Exoplanet News. You can get in touch with us and let us know your thoughts on the show at Exocast on Twitter, which is exo underscore cast. You can find all of our episodes on our website, exocast.org, or on iTunes, Spotify, all of your different podcasting apps. And I want to give a massive appreciative shout out to our Buy Me A Coffee donations that we've got. So we are thanking this month Steve Hungsberg and Graham Lee, who loaded us up with some coffee. We've been buzzing Thanks, on that Steve. for a little bit. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, um, And a absolutely humongous thank you to Anton, who has donated a whopping $100 wow. to support the show. Wow. Whoa. That's very generous. Thank you, Anton. <laughs> uh, if you That's do... Incredible. If you also want to help support the show, you can donate at buymeacoffee.com slash exocast. Donations over $15 will get you a shout out on the next show. You can also support us by buying Exocast merchandise. I am currently sporting my Exocast jumper uh, and I have a very nice coffee mug as well. So you can go to exocast.threadless.com and check out all the different designs we have up there for you. But for now, thank you very much for listening and we will see you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Exocast. I have exoplanets. This podcast was brought to you by the Exocast team. Hannah Wakeford is a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol in the UK. Hugh Osborne is the Tess Chaops Fellow at MIT and the University of Bern. And Andrew Rushby is a postdoctoral fellow in astronomy at the University of California, Irvine. Music was courtesy of Poddington Bear. You can find more information on exocast.org.